Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I was finding it more and more difficult because I was kind of walking around the place and looking at the world and you can kind of see the skull beneath the skin all the time, this kind of terrible thing where you're watching your kids play and going, actually, in 20 years' time, this is all gone. You know, what does the world look like then? So, I mean, I wanted to kind of think about all of that stuff a bit. I do think that one of the things that happens is you really quickly get to a point where you go, we're fucked. The only question is how badly and how soon. It's a bit like that old notion from therapy about addiction. You've got to reach kind of rock bottom. And once you reach rock bottom, everything's over. You've got to start rebuilding. But in a weird kind of way, rock bottom's the worst moment, but it's also the beginning of getting somewhere. And and I felt like I wanted to kind of deconstruct it to that point where you realise that it's that bad. That is author and critic James Bradley. And this is episode 338 of Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is simply a podcast that hopes to help make today better than yesterday. Something that you'll hear in this show will help you go, you know what? When you go to bed tonight, you'll be like, you know what? Yeah, today was a good one. Better than it was yesterday. That's it. That's all I'm here to do. Every other one of the other 337 episodes is guaranteed to do the same thing. You are going to need, you are going to hear something you need to hear today. That's the guarantee of this show. And I've been doing this show every week since 2013. Crikey. A long time now. Long time. On Mondays, I speak with a guest. On Fridays, I speak with you. My name is Osher Ginsberg. If you don't know me, I'm a TV guy and book writing guy from Sydney, Australia. I was from 
London and then Adelaide and then Brisbane and then Adelaide and then Sydney and then Los Angeles and now Sydney again. But yeah, I've been, a bit, been around the world and I, I can't find my baby. Anyway, thanks for listening. Thank you so much for everyone that did email through the week. I do love to see where you listen to the show. Send us your email at gmail.com is my email address. Thanks very much for Paul who reached out to say that he enjoyed the Rich Dennis episode. That was a cracker. Um, who knew that a conversation with an economist could be so freaking awesome? It was a great one. Really plain, simple, good Good chat. Dom also got in touch to let me know that they have the similar or the same 80s cork flooring in their house. Oh, yeah. We did a um, we did a tour of the house with Ikea the other day, and um, I showed the studio that I make this podcast in, and we have this wild cork f- flooring from the last century down in here. And uh, it's nice that, I'm not, nice that I'm not alone, Dom. Thanks. A great photo of a couple that I won't name, but it was an adorable photo on their way. And they said, very honestly, they said, we're on our way to marriage counseling. In their words, trying to stay together during COVID. Ripper idea. Smart move. Every player needs a coach, even the champs. Have you been watching The Last Dance, the documentary about the Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan? I mean, Michael Jordan refused to play. He said, I'm not going to play without Phil Jackson, my coach. So the greatest basketballer ever in the history of the game refused to play without his coach. Even he knew he needed guidance. Players need a coach, man. Players need a coach. And Natalie, she uh, was kind enough to send on an email chain, which was interesting to read, of her contact back and forth with her MP and her MP's assistant. Uh, I did speak uh, the other day about talking with your member of parliament about climate change. And I spoke through my experience most recently. I, I do try to get in touch with the people that matter and I do reach out to them. Natalie sent me her uh, email chain. It was a bit of a head and brick wall situation. But look, Natalie, sometimes it's tough going. I can definitely see that it was tough going for you, but we just have to do it. To steal the words of George C. Scott when he recreated General Patton's speech to the Third Army at the start of the 1970 movie Patton, 30 years from now, you're going to be sitting around with your grandchild on your knee, and when they ask you, what did you do when we had the chance to make a change with the climate, you won't have to say, well, I shared some memes and shrugged my shoulders. You'll be able to tell them that you did everything you could within your power. It's bloody good of you, Natalie. Don't give up. Contacting your MP, contracting your local member of government, council, whatever, state, federal, whoever it is, lobbying them, it is indeed within your power and it is something we must do. We live in a democracy, thankfully, and being in a democracy comes with a responsibility and that responsibility is ours and we must do it. And it's pertinent. Pertinent when thinking about my guest today. If this is your first show, if your first time you're listening to this program, you may or may not realise that... Uh, I have a, a bit of a, a bit of a story um, around uh, mental health, mental mental ill health. Um, my, for me, a, a large part of I wrote a book about it, and a large part of that book has to do with me actually losing my mind um, due to climate anxiety. And for a very long time, my triggers were so very intense that I was unable to even walk outside on a day when the sun would touch my skin. It was very, 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 very bad. I thought of a way to describe it to someone the other day, actually, who's never had that kind of ruminating horror, the OCD-related fear that I had that, that spirals up and gets really bad and then turns into delusions and visions and twisted fantasies and things that flash into your mind and seem real. I'll, I'll describe it like this. If you remember, and we've all done it accidentally, and we regret it, but we know we have done it, the first time you accidentally clicked on a link that took you to a, a locked-off shot of a man in an orange jumpsuit on his knees, surrounded by guys in black ski masks with a black flag hanging on the back wall. 
And before you know it, before you've realised what's happening, you are watching an ISIS beheading video. That shock of suddenly realising what you're seeing, that disbelief and then that that then that feeling in your body as you are reacting in horrible empathy to this awful, wretched, grotesque violence that's happening on the screen. And then how that feeling in your body just returns every time you think of it. Imagine if that feeling never dissipated with time. As I'm describing it to you right now, you're probably remembering, yeah, I do recall it was awful. But imagine that feeling never fading with time, like memories, if they're working properly, do. Imagine that feeling visits you and fills your body and your mind's eye with its visceral reaction and that real moment and just keeps repeating every eight to 10 seconds. That is what it was like. It was utterly, utterly awful. So for a long time, I avoided conversations about climate change. I avoided the topic. I avoided articles. I avoided even trying to think about it. I thought it was the right thing to do to avoid it. But all it did was just make it worse. I didn't realise it, but I was making the monster more scary every time I turned away and hid from it. So when I looked back to check if the monster was still there, the monster would be bigger and the monster would be scarier. I learned that if I wanted this feeling in my body to be less awful, I had to be brave and I had to expose myself to the discomfort and to be willing to be with it, to accept this thing that I was terrified of as something that was happening and we couldn't avoid and accept that I would just have to learn how to live my life with it. At first, it was really, really, really hard. And over time, it got easier. But part of my recovery is to keep going with that exposure and, and, and lean into the things that, that horrify me, to not scroll past an article, but to click on it, to read it, to have those difficult conversations, the kind that I used to avoid. And, and lately, with all that's going on, as you know, I've been listening to the show, I've been thinking a lot about climate change and how we, right now, during this pandemic, have a chance, have this chance that we may never get again to make a big shift as we work to recover our economy. We have a chance to do that and to recover as much as we can of our environment. We have this chance right now and I'm worried that it won't come back again. But I've been thinking about it a lot and I've been waking up with the fear again. That's one of the things that starts to happen when I start to get bad. I've been waking up with the visions of... um, really real visions of melting glaciers and these beautiful arcing waterfalls that form. I don't know if you've ever seen them. They form as the the glacier empties its rapidly warming surface into the, the frigid sea below, about 80 or 100 metres below it. It's beautiful to watch, but it's perversely, even as glorious and beautiful as it is to see, it's perversely a sign that things are terribly, terribly bad. And so these visions, they started to get worse and worse and I could feel the feeling coming up and back into my body. And so I just got to work and I'd, I'd wake up every morning with the feeling still in my body and I'd write in my book, I'd get the fear out on paper. And then one morning, which is really interesting, as I, you know, I'd write it in the, Wolfie, he plays in his little octagon, his little playpen and he works on his morning poo while I do my writing and that's what we do in the mornings. One morning between waking up and then the visions filling my brain, there's this tiny little moment of realisation that pops into my head most mornings. 
in that little moment, it's only seconds long, but my subconscious kicked in and was finally able to make sense of it and was finally able to find me a pathway. And this is a really interesting part of my brain, and I know you have it too, because for me, it's the part of my brain that learns by itself. I put all the information into it, and that part of my brain then puts it all together and figures something out without me having to work at it. It's the part of my brain that figured out how to drive a manual car so that from one day to the next, I no longer think about putting the clutch in, all right? It just happened. I'm like, oh, I didn't deliberately do that. My brain just went, oh, yeah, yeah, and put it all together while I slept. Or the part of my brain that worked out how to turn a snowboard. I remember like distinctly, the last run of the day, say whatever it was on a Tuesday, I think I learned how to snowboard on a Tuesday. The last turns of the day were really, really hard. Got back in the car, we drove back down to Jindabai and the next morning, you know, whatever, 14 hours later, we get back on the hill, suddenly I can turn left and right. Now I didn't snowboard at all overnight. I didn't work on any turns, but my brain figured it out. The part of my brain that organizes and figures things out for me that morning couple of days ago, I came up with a wise and wonderful message. And it was interesting because I was imagining if my infant son Wolfgang could talk and he and I were having a conversation and I was explaining to this beautiful nine-month-old boy what, what's happening to the world. And I say to him, I'm sorry, Wolfie, but we've missed our chance. We didn't do enough. We have altered the atmosphere too much already to avoid massive changes in the weather the best we can do now is learn to live together with what we have all done. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking, but it gives me hope. And I felt a lot of relief once my brain figured that part out. It Look, it breaks my heart. And it's a cruel trick of physics that it is harder to cool things down than it is to heat them up. It's, it's, it's shit, but that's how it is. That we cannot, no matter what we do, avoid the world heating up to what looks like now more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. And that the Western Antarctic ice sheet, which is no land under, it's just a big chunk of ice sitting down there hanging off the edge of Antarctica, that is predicted to collapse if and when we do pass that 1.5 degrees Celsius mark. And that there's enough water in that ice sheet to make the sea level rise very quickly, about three metres. And that's horrible to understand. And that at this point, on the path that we're on right now, we can't avoid that. And that will happen in my lifetime. That's utterly heartbreaking. It's horrible to realise. And yet my hope is that just like this pandemic has shown us that new ways of living thrust upon us, can very quickly change our community and change our values around what we think is important and change our behaviour on a massive scale and also bring us a welcome change and a different way of doing things. My hope is that similar changes to our world show us that the only pathway to survival involves us working out how to live and act together for the global good. It is a horrible, horrible price to pay but that's my hope, that we will pay this awful price, but what we get in return is that we learn how to be together like we've never been together before in history. Because the alternative is calamity. And this brings me to my guest today, who I will get to in just a second. 
If conversations about climate action are something that you seek more of, may I recommend episode 309 of this podcast with Erin Brockovich? Yeah, that Erin Brockovich. We had a cracking conversation a couple of months ago, and I left that chat completely fired up and motivated for action. You can find episode 309 of Better Than Yesterday where you found this episode. Here is just a taste. Get involved locally. Get involved if you, you know, the trickle-down effect from the top. This is what we've all been taught. But I'll tell you what, a lot goes on in your own backyard right at your own city council. Show up. Right there is where you can stop something. You can say, I don't want this in my backyard. And when city council, if you ever go to city council meetings here, because they're like they are at home. Nobody's there. They're just sitting there talking to themselves. But it's a game changer. And it's worth the look of their face when they see 100 of you come in. Or 200. They're like, whoa, wait a minute. They're involved. But get involved yeah. in your own backyard. Just show up. So let me tell you about my guest today. James Bradley is an author and a critic from Sydney, Australia. He's on Twitter at City of Tongues, or one word, and he's on Instagram, Ghost Species on Instagram. City of Tongues on Twitter and Ghost Species on Instagram. He's written seven novels, seven, the latest of which is called Ghost Species. His work lately focuses on fictional explorations of a planet grappling with massive climactic challenges and how we as human beings might indeed cope and try to continue our lives, continue our relationships, continue, you know, meeting people, marrying, having children, having ups and downs while all this stuff's going on. His nonfiction work is harrowing in its precision and its precise assessment of where we are and where we're going. I'd encourage you to track down his essays that he's written for The Monthly and The Guardian, among others. Fiction is incredibly important when it comes to exploring how we as a community might respond to future challenges and opportunities, and it really does help us kind of imagine how a society might work when certain different conditions exist to the ones that exist right now. I would ask you to consider Aldous Huxley's Brave New World when it comes to the idea of keeping a populace sedated with distraction, or Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale as a stark reflection of the role of women in society and male power over half of our species. Bradley's work is tough going for someone like me. His non-fiction work is utterly unflinching. And it was really hard to have this chat. I'm not going to lie to you, but these are conversations that are indeed hard to have. Nobody wants to hear that we've already done too much damage to the atmosphere. And even if we stopped emitting CO2 tomorrow, it wouldn't make a lick of difference. And so many changes will still occur. Nobody wants to hear that. And yet here we are. On the back of the worst bushfires in the history of our country. And as I record this, a tropical cyclone hitting 1,000 kilometres of the West Australian coast, coming from a direction that a storm of that size has never come from before, at a time of year when storms like that never, ever happen. Alas, these events are only going to get more severe and closer together. And eventually, eventually we will act. It sucks. It sucks that we are human and we wait for the heart attack before we change our exercise and eating habits. It's the worst, but that is what we are. 
30 years ago, we had the chance to get on the bus to take us to a new way of life, and we might have even been able to keep most of our stuff with us. The sad fact is that we have missed that bus. And the buses that came after. The ones driven by very smart people who saw the path we needed to be on and were leading the way. And those buses have now stopped coming. The easy way to change is sadly mostly gone. We're pretty much down to Ubers, which means we might be able to take a little bit of our stuff with us, but probably not all of it. But if we don't move, like, right now, we're going to have to start walking. And if we don't move, those storms and bushfires and sea level rise, well, that means that we'll have no option but to run and leave everything that we knew behind. So what's it going to be? This conversation is a hard one. I came home after this chat and I, I fell into Audrey's arms and I cried. But these are conversations that we have to have. This level of acceptance is one that we absolutely must come to because only once we are in acceptance can we act with the right amount, <laughs> the right amount of motivation. This week... The government in Australia is touting massive investment in gas as a way to rebuild the economy. The economic and scientific arguments against this are so strong that a move like investing in more fossil fuels is utterly baffling. But here we are. So I'd encourage you to listen to this conversation. Hold the discomfort inside. Be willing to be with it. And then get into action. Call, write, email, fax, visit, you name it, just do it. Make time for it. Make it a part of your week because we only have this chance right now. James Bradley is a very, very clever man. And I'm so grateful that we were able to chat. He was my very last face-to-face interview before the COVID-19 lockdown. And as I've said for weeks on this show, this moment right here, this is our chance at making vital economic recovery and environmental action happen at the same time. I normally say enjoy this conversation, but it's a tough one to enjoy. So just try and be with it. Do it like you do one of those hot yoga classes. They're really hard. Do the hard work. Feel your head spin. Breathe heavily. But do it knowing that you'll come out stronger on the other side despite the discomfort. You can find James on Twitter at City of Tongues. His latest book is called Ghost Species, which is also his Instagram handle at Ghost Species. I hope you get a lot out of this conversation with James Bradley. Hi, James. Hi. Hi. <laughs> so we're in the Batuta studios. They were kind enough to lend me the space right. while, uh, after Wolfie got born, our baby, because uh, my podcast space became a baby room. <laughs> Happens. Um, so I've been here for a couple of months and it's been been ripper and uh, it's always great to get here and chat with those guys. And brilliantly, they just like to, like, who's coming in today? <laughs> oh, he's an author. He's writing this. Oh, yeah, great. They just like having different people around. They like the, Which is nice. Yeah, they like the serendipity and the chaos of, of having different people. But yeah, the blowback, I, even in the, it's so fun, the reactionary nature of online yeah. discourse, it's not reality. It's a simulation of reality that we have allowed to become Yep. reality and that in the preamble like, like last night I put up a photograph of me and the premier Gladys Berejiklian and I wrote look I really disagree with her 
on a number of things, pill testing being one of them. But I wanted to show that you can have a conversation with someone that you really disagree with. Yep. And there will be things that, oh, yeah, I get that. Doesn't mean that everything hmm. else that she does completely cancels that out. And like, and like, I just want to show that you can do that. 3D hashtag koala killer. It's like, that's exactly what I'm fucking talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's this, this idea that the reactionary nature of discourse has driven, it's a horrible tail we're being wagged by like someone's got our tail we're being thrown around by it that drives engagement and algorithm somewhere we go that gets a lot of clicks and so mm -hmm. these things become the version of reality that we're exposed to when it's not actually reality sorry that's a deep way to start james well i think but i mean i think it's right i mean I think one of the things that's really interesting is you see one version of what people think on social media and if you actually talk to people who aren't on twitter you know yeah. Frequently, they have, you know, Twitter is a very odd representation of society, it seems yeah. to me. You know, and I mean, and also, like, weirdly enough, my kids love Gogglebox, of all things. Best show. And I've watched Gogglebox with the kids. I actually love Gogglebox. And one of the things I love about it is you watch these people who come from a range of different backgrounds and what's brought home to you is that they all have complex, thoughtful responses to what they're watching, you know, mm. and that particularly when they show them stuff that is political, you know, I don't always agree with what they've got to say, but you see that their responses are complex and thought through. And, and I think that that really gets sanded off by social media and by social media and media discourse generally, mm. you know, this kind of sense that we forget how to talk to people yeah. that we don't agree with, you know, and at the end of the day, lots of people don't agree with me about lots of things. I have to talk to them, you know, and it's talking to people you don't agree with is, is sometimes I change my mind, <laughs> you know, it's like. And that's, I think that's the other thing we have a lot. There's these cultures of cancelling people out and there's no room for growth. There's no room for, you know what, I really fucked that up. And mm. I know that I voted this way on that last time we were in power but I've changed my mind, and this is how I feel about it now. Oh, you're just nothing but a flip-flopper. No. I have a malleable view of the world because I'm a human being. You know, it's not like we're born and then our set of responses is rusted on for life. We change. We move. We, we may, you know, feel a certain way about immigrants, and then Katut moves in next door, and Katut's awesome, and suddenly you feel very differently about people from his country, you know? <laughs> Because he's helping you with the yard. And you're like, you know what? You're all right. <laughs> it's, it's odd. You and I have a bit, of, a bit in common in that Adelaide was a place that there was some growing up done by both of us, I do believe. I didn't know that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you from Adelaide. Oh, when we first moved to Australia, yes. Oh, okay. And then I moved back there when I was 24, which was at a time when no one was moving to Adelaide. Everyone thought I was bananas in yeah. the late 90s. Yeah. And which part of Adelaide did you grow up in? Uh, I grew up in Glenelg, the uh, sex crime capital of Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Beaumont children <laughs> terrifying utterly terrifying and uh, Adelaide is a, it's a, and I say it on this show quite a bit it's a weird town on the edge of a desert where weird stuff happens the metropolis is just large enough that if you walk through the centre of the town on Arundel Mall you will visually see many 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 aspects of the community walking up and down because there's only one real central gathering place for the city, whereas a city like Sydney is geographically broken up in very different places, and Melbourne's similar. But Adelaide, you see everybody in Adelaide. You see the, the kings and queens from the hills, and you see the people who are talking to the pig statues. You see everybody. 
It's an interesting spot. It's an interesting place. I mean, it's a funny city because it's not like other cities in Australia in that it was settled in a quite different way. So it's this kind of notion that the place was created as a kind of utopia, you know, so kind of decent people moved in and then they populated it, you know, with what they saw as decent working people. I mean, it's a kind of really weird 19th century social experiment. And I think... You know, my mum always used to say Adelaide is both the most conservative and the most radical place in Australia simultaneously. You know, it's this place that's very conservative in lots of ways, but then it's the place where the Dunstan government was. It's the, you know, second place in the world to give suffrage to women, you know. So there's this kind of really weird yeah. duality about the place. It's openly, both, openly gay premier in a place where yeah. hate crimes against gay people were just a par for the course. Yeah, in the 1970s. Yes. You know, so I mean, it is that kind of thing where it's weirdly simultaneously extremely progressive and not, you yeah. know. It's an odd place you know <laughs> oh you know like i just I, you know i grew up there and i was back there a lot of few years ago when my dad was dying and i kind of i found i think like a lot of people who leave places i had quite complex feelings about it you mm. know and then i guess particularly once i was back there a lot over those years i found i i don't know I found more accommodation with it than I perhaps had in the past. It's a nice you know. spot. Yeah. It, when know. when what you want out of life changes, as you do, as you grow up, you go, actually, this is actually all right. You know, I can buy a five-bedroom house for the same yeah. amount of money I could spend on a one-bedroom squat in Darlinghurst. It's pretty good. Yeah, I think you can live. Well, and I think one thing that's really interesting about it as well is I know a lot of people who are there who are in the arts of one form or another. And one thing that's really interesting about it is because it was so cheap, they've been able to kind of build lives where they make things, they make art, they write, they do all of these kinds of things because they could live for a kind of song in a way that you can't in Sydney yeah. or Melbourne or Brisbane. I knew a bloke who lived in a silver mine. He was a set designer and he had access to a mine shaft at the end of his living room. This is, the house was his, <laughs> like warehouse style. And he was a set designer for independent theatre. Like that makes no money anyway. I don't know how they're going to pay anybody to do yeah, it, yeah. but he lived in this colossal building because he could. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a, it's a really, look, it's a really interesting place. You know, and I think there's also all that stuff about the places you grow up and, you know, I've lived in Sydney all my adult life. You know, I know it really, really well, but, you know, I go back to Adelaide and there's that thing where it's like, I know how it smells, I know how it looks, I know, like, it's really weird, like, it's really inside you in a weird kind of way. So the going back there is always about this kind of, yeah, you know, there's this kind of sensory memory of the place you grew up and a sense of kind of connection, I think, to it as well. You know, this is the place where my great aunt, who's one of the last people to see the Beaumont children alive, lived, you know. So it's like Whoa. those kinds of things. You know, this is where my, my father always had this very funny story about a relative of his who was a terrible boozer and he had two stories about him. One of them was he finally got false teeth and he got so drunk that he threw up and lost them on the grass on the semaphore esplanade, but the other was that he got caught for urinating in a public place and ended up in court in, I think, the Port Adelaide Magistrates Court and got fined, walked out the door, got caught short and nipped down the side of the courthouse to take a slash and the two cops that he'd just been in there with came out and caught him and arrested him for a second time doing exactly the same thing. So that kind of weird thing about that's where your family come from. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. It's an extraordinary place and it's it's great to leave. Uh, <laughs> I remember when I left there the, the second time. What drove you to leave there? Oh, I think like, well, you know, I think like everyone, it was the early 90s and I had no work and I wanted to be a writer and I couldn't see how to do it in Adelaide and, you know, I wanted to be somewhere different. I wanted to be someone different. Yeah. I think that's a big thing about moving away from your hometown, like you get to be somebody else. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about Adelaide is, if you, as you know, if you meet people from Adelaide, their first or second question will always be, where did you go to school? Because mm. they can immediately place you socially, you know. Same with Brisbane. Yeah. Second you know. question. And maybe it'll be the, that question if you come from Sydney as well. I don't know, but because I don't come from here, no one ever asks me. You know? No, no. When you're a young man, and as far as a profession goes, writer is a tricky one to convince the folks it's a great idea. <laughs> when did that pop up? Oh, I studied philosophy. I was going to be a philosopher, and I didn't do that. And then I finished a law degree, and I worked for a little while, first of all for a judge, and then as a solicitor here in Sydney, which I was both not very good at and did not like. And I had this boss who'd been a writer who's now dead, who's this fascinating man, and he said to me one day, like, you know, you need to commit to this job. You either need to be a writer or you need to be a lawyer. Which do you want to be? And I said, I'll be a writer. <laughs> like, walked out the door and did this thing where I kind of walked away going, I'll just quit my job. Like, I've got no idea what I'm going to do now. And so I must have been about 25, 24, 25. And, yeah, I got a job in an all-night video shop in the Cross and wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> it's the training ground for that much greatness. There's just something about that job, all right? The, the, it doesn't exist anymore, obviously, the, uh, the video shop job, but there's just something about that job. I don't know if it's just being exposed to stories all day long, seeing the people that come in, yeah. but it seems to be this breeding ground for extraordinary careers. I know that many people yeah. in my line of work that did that job. Yeah. Well, I think also it's one of those jobs where it's very undemanding. So, like, you do these night shifts and, like, three people would come in and you're just sitting there, you know, and I think that having all that empty space, like, I used to work while I was in there and read and, you know, watch movies and just I guess it gave me a financial way of having the space to write, you know, and I think that's really, really difficult to find when you're that, when you're that age. As you started to find success as a writer. What we laughingly call success as well, an Australian writer. Yeah. I teach sometimes and we we used to, in this course, do a thing occasionally where we'd get a publisher in to talk to them. We had this one publisher we used a couple of times and she'd arrive with the book scan figures and the book scan figures are the what's sold this week. So, so basically publishers have a really granular set of numbers about how many books are sold 
around the country, what's the best sellers, where they've sold, you know. And she'd turn up with these and basically she'd sit there for an hour and just work her way down the list and sit there going, yeah, that book's about the Titanic. Yeah, they always sell well. And you'd watch these students afterwards and they would be like ashen-faced because they'd suddenly realised that that beautiful book they were writing, it had suddenly occurred to them it was a fast-moving consumer item, you know, like the joke goes, shorter shelf life than yoghurt. And it was just really confronting for them, I think, to suddenly see that their bright, beautiful dream of book was going to be a product that went into a marketplace. And, that you know, it's still a beautiful thing that they've written, but that it will be dealt with as a product. And I think it's really shocking for people, very confronting, you know. Well, it's the same with music. It's the yeah. same with songs. Yeah. You know, here's a song I wrote about, I don't know, the time that the, the mother of my child left me <laughs> and I never saw that lady girl ever again and pour my heart out of this and then someone comes out the back of it and does a live read for a butcher shop. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, okay. It's <laughs> three minutes where the DJ was having a cigarette <laughs> or, or whatever whatever they're doing. I got, I got you in here because you wrote, you've written a number of things that have all started to converge towards the... Um, the biggest pressing issue of humanity uh, <laughs> being man-made climate change. And uh, for one, it's, you know, you wrote something that, that, that was at the end of the... Anthropocene. Pardon? An, oh, I never know how you say it. Anthropocene. End of the Anthropocene. 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 Well, it. that's where we are. You wrote this piece and it was given to me by my therapist. <laughs> that wasn't a kind thing for your therapist to do to you. As a part of exposure therapy. <laughs> Okay, so I, 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 I don't know if you know too much of my story, but I actually had such horrendous climate anxiety. I actually fell off the edge of reality and I started experiencing psychosis and paranoid delusions and it was horrid. It was utterly horrid and, and it, was, it was really, really, really bad. As we get kind of further into things, <laughs> I started looking and think. Maybe it was an okay reaction. <laughs> Maybe it was an excess of rationality rather than a lack yes. of rationality. Maybe it was like, but I got you in here because, A, it's terrifying for me to speak to you and that's important that I, you know, do things that are frightening to me. But the way I read it, it was one of the first times I thought, oh, fuck, thank God, it's not just me. Once you actually grasp the gravity of what we have done, not we're facing, what we have done and what we must face, even if we changed everything this morning. I guess I wanted to get you in for a few things. Rule number one is like, how in the fuck do you think about research and, you know, just be with the knowledge that it takes to write stuff like that and then write the works of fiction that you have based around this? Yeah. So in a weird way, the nonfiction came out of the fiction. So I'd been writing, you know, I mean, I guess I've been writing stuff about climate change, in fact, now for a long time, you know, but in a secondary kind of, you know, it was always something that was there in my work. So I've got a novel that I published 20-something years ago that's got a lot of climate change stuff in it. Yeah. But I guess about 10 years ago, I started to think, you know, I didn't like what I was writing and I guess I started to think, well, what is it I want to write about? And I guess, you know, like with lots of us, it coincided with having kids and I, you know, you suddenly start thinking about, well, what's going to happen 20 years from now? What are they going to grow up into? And I guess I started trying to think about how you would write fiction about climate change. And so I published a novel in 2015, came out in Australia called Clade, which was very much about trying to kind of think through what kind of living through climate change might be like, you know. So it was not a disaster novel in a narrow sense. It's set across about 60 years and it's just the world changes and the characters are in the middle of it, you know. So it's, it's about what 
does that feel like? What's the experience of living through this transformation going to be like? And I was, you know, and like lots of things, you write it because you're trying to work it out for yourself. You know, I was trying to think, well, what is it going to be like? I don't really know. And I guess after I'd written it, I started writing more and more nonfiction in that space. You know, and that was, I guess, it was partly because I felt like, again, it was things I needed to think about it and think my way through. But it was also because I felt like there was stuff there that needed to be written, you know, like, I mean, it was stuff that needed to be said and needed to be thought about. And so that, you know, you kind of go with, go with that. But I guess with the, the essay you're talking about, which is very much about, I think like lots of people who work around the climate space, I've been really good at a kind of compartmentalization. So there's this thing where I know I've spent a lot of time reading about it. I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. I actually know how bad things are in a rational sense. And I was allowing myself to simultaneously kind of know and not know. You know, like you know, but you don't let yourself think about it. Or if you do think about it, you only think about it for a little while because it freaks you out too much. Or you kind of hold that knowledge in various kinds of ways. And I kind of began to think, and I've been thinking this for a while, that that, that in itself is a kind of denial. I began to wonder about, I guess, my own denial of what I knew and what that meant. And, and I guess I wanted to start thinking about how do you have those conversations with people because they're really, really difficult conversations about, you know, we are so much further down this rabbit hole than any of you think and we already are in a situation where it's going to be convulsive and terrible and we're heading towards catastrophe and not, not on a long timeline. I guess that it came out of that. And I also, I'd been doing a lot of work on, I wrote a very long piece about Adani and coal policy and things like that in Australia. So I'm kind of interested in that political dimension of it as well. And that kind of policy dimension, although to be honest, I'm not enough of a policy wonk to do that terribly usefully. So yeah, I mean, I guess I think, I think it was about trying to confront my own denial about it that I wanted to write about, which is very much what the essay is kind of about. It's about trying to go through that process and think about where are we? Well, something that struck me a lot about it was that once you start to pick at it just a little bit more, then something felt a bit different. Once you start to get at it, it very suddenly becomes so gargantuan, you can't actually conceive it. And it it almost vanishes. It's sort of weird. Well, I mean, I think we do all exist in this kind of weird dissonance, which is if we know anything about it, we appreciate the scale of the problem but then we don't think about it. We don't let ourselves think about it because it's too terrible. You know, we continue to fly. We continue to go through our lives as normal, as you kind of know that we're barreling towards disaster. And I think that dissonance starts to become really difficult to sustain after a while, you know, and it starts to infect things. And it starts, I mean, you've talked about this, you know, that sense that I was finding it more and more difficult because I was kind of walking around the place and looking at the world and going, you can kind of see the skull beneath the skin all the time, this kind of terrible thing where you're watching your kids play and going, actually, in 20 years' time, this is all gone. You know, what does the world look like then? So, I mean, I wanted to kind of think about all of that stuff a bit. And I guess, like lots of writers, the way I think is by writing. You know, mm. so you you try and organise your thoughts into kind of writing. So that's very much what the essay was about. And about trying to... I do think that one of the things happens that happens is you really quickly get to a point where you go... There's that fantastic line of Roy Scranton's where he says, you know, we're fucked. The only question is how badly and how soon. 
And once you kind of appreciate that, I was talking in the essay and saying it's a bit like that old notion from therapy about addiction. You've got to reach kind of rock bottom. And once you reach rock bottom, everything's over. You've got to start rebuilding. But in a weird kind of way, rock bottom is the worst moment, but it's also the beginning of getting somewhere. And, and I felt like I wanted to kind of deconstruct it to that point where you realise that it's that bad. Well, I really, 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 really hope that the addiction metaphor works because for me, my life of recovery, I'm nearly 10 years sober now, is bigger, better, more exciting, more incredible than I could have ever, ever, ever conceived with my old way of doing things. And my life now is about expansion and about everything is more wonderful and bigger than I could possibly have comprehended. And I would certainly hope that if that is the analogy we're going for, that once we do hit that rock bottom, that we do indeed then go, oh, right, okay, here's a way around it. I can't imagine, I mean, this is, we're, we're two white guys <laughs> from Australia talking about it, right? I can't imagine what the scientists who first talked about this in the 70s and the 80s, you know, what their mental health is like. Because they must have just sat in front of that many people going, oh, finally, I'm in front of you. Look, I've got this really terrifying thing I have to talk to you about. It. Like, now, we need to do it now. And in 1986. <laughs> you know, and then how do they live the rest of their life knowing what they know, you know? Yeah, look, I, I, I spend some time with scientists and they are... I don't know how they get up in the morning, you know, but they're they're really interesting. I've just I've been away, in fact, on the Cocos Islands with some people who are working on plastics over there, and you know, you're on various beaches there. Some of it's incredibly beautiful. Some of it is covered in plastic, like just unbelievably terrible. And I was actually talking to one of the scientists and saying, "So, how do you deal with it?" And she said, "I just I've kind of lost the capacity." to feel about these things, you know, because we were all very shocked by it. And she was just like, no, I see it every day. I've just learned to close that off. I can't think about it anymore. You know, and you hear variations on those kinds of responses. But I do know that over the last few years, the people you talk to, they seem to be, well, they are becoming more and more, I think their ability to keep it at bay is becoming less and less, you know. So, I mean, Joelle Gerges, who's a climate scientist at ANU, uh, she wrote a kind of really amazing piece in the monthly a while ago and she was saying that you know she found it difficult for a long time but now she just finds herself giving these presentations and kind of breaking down in tears or going back to the hotel room and sitting there and just because you know it's so bad you know i mean i i've talked about addiction before i do think one of the things when you're trying to think about these questions is another way of thinking about it's actually to think about that kind of old model of grieving that kind of notion that you move through kind of denial anger bargaining towards a kind of acceptance, you know, and now, sure, that may not be a psychologically sustainable model, but, you know, I think you can kind of see that going on in people's reactions. And you're seeing a lot of people at the moment who are stumbling out of denial into something where they are angry and frightened and having spent quite a lot of time in, as you clearly have, in that space, it's a really bad place to be. You know, it's really frightening. And, I think what you're seeing is a lot of people grappling to come to terms with where we are and trying to move through that because you kind of need to get through that to a point of this kind of acceptance of kind of saying, so, you know, like the line goes, we're fucked, you know, so what do we do now? You know, and that's actually a much better place to be, you know, that sense where you kind of go, okay, you know, the reality is our society is unsustainable in its current form that's a matter of kind of physical and environmental constraints. So that means that either we have to change the society 
the environmental constraints will change it for us. You know, and we don't have a choice about the change. You know, well, what's Greta Thunberg's line? You know, change is coming whether you like it or not. <laughs> you know, there is that kind of idea that that can be both a threat and a promise. You know, so, you know, we need to get past that kind of sense of the world's ending, let's build bunkers and go away and hide in them because that's a kind of response of privilege. You know, what we need to start saying is how do we build a world which can actually survive? And that process of trying to look for a way to build a better world is, is kind of the next the next stage. I get the bunker feeling. <laughs> I 100% get the bunker feeling. Did you go through that at any point? Um, uh, look, I've thought for a while that we're engaged in this massive experiment about the resilience of our society. And I don't actually know how resilient the society is. I have to say, I stood in a Woolworths on Tuesday night last week when all the toilet paper was being sold out because of coronavirus. And I suddenly thought, this could all go down very, very fast. You know, and I think it's interesting. If you talk to a lot of the scientists, they will say, we think if the end comes, it'll come really suddenly. You know, so I've certainly done some thinking about what should be in the shed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, But yeah, I mean, I I can't afford to buy a bunker. You know, but I also think that that's in a way the wrong response. I mean, I think that in fact... That's a response that comes out of this kind of individualistic, Mm. everyone for themselves kind of mindset. And that's actually what a lot of the problem is. Mm. Like what we need to be doing is saying, how do we get each other through this? Barry Lopez, who's a very old now nature writer, published what will be his last book last year, I think. And there's this amazing line near the beginning and he's looking at a woman. He's, He's at a hotel pool looking at the people around him at the pool and he just says, I want everybody to survive, you know, I just want everybody to survive what's coming. And I actually think that should be our kind of point. You know, our point of you know, departure needs to be how do we all get through this? Not how do we rich white people in Australia get through this? It needs to be how do we all get through this? And I actually think that that's why all of the stuff about despair and saying Look, the world's over is unacceptable because it seems to me that as soon as you start saying I'm going to run away and live on my farm because the world's going to end, what you're doing is saying there are a billion people living in Asia, they're done. You know, I mean, it is, that's a response of privilege and we can't allow that kind of position to be the position we operate from, particularly given that Australians are the biggest emitters in the world. We've got one of the biggest environmental footprints in the world. You know, I mean, it's that kind of like, you know, we're the problem. It's not everybody else that's the problem. It's really tough for people to comprehend that. It's really tough for people to go, hang on, I feel safe and secure and, you know, and I... I go through the drive-thru on the way home and I pick up burgers for my family and then I, you know, sit there and we watch seven different shows on our eight different TV screens between the three of us, you know, and what do you mean I can't have all of this and how dare you take it away from me? How dare you take it away from me? I've worked hard for these things. I bought these things with my own money and it's very difficult to kind of accept that we've all been swindled a bit by the system indeed that we are a part of that has been built up over hundreds of years, but it's a system that is now reaching its edges of ability to function because the mm. externalities that never used to make a dent are well and truly creating creating dents at the pushing back at the other end of it. And the uh, yeah, the idea of wanting to go and hide is, you know, I was speaking to a bloke about this um, before I went on to Q&A. I spoke with a couple of really heavy hitting people who said, don't say who I am. <laughs> um, but one of them hit me with this, fuck, man, it was, I had to go and hug my wife after it. He said, in a hundred years, the planet won't look a thing like it looks today. 
because I asked him what gives you hope. He said, in 100 years, a planet won't look at all, a thing, won't look a thing like it does today, but neither will the way that humans treat each other. Yeah. And it's a horrible, horrible, horrible price for us to pay, but that's the hope that I have, that yeah. we as humans, if we're still alive, it's because we have figured out how to be around each other and how to be with each other. When you see the systems, particularly the, the political systems, let's go towards the coal thing, I guess. When you see the political systems that have got us uh, here, what do you see n needs to change there? Speaking of someone who's not a politician and not a policy person. Um, look, I'm, I'm asking that. I'm just a voter that pays tax, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I think the thing that was really interesting, so I wrote a long piece about Adani just before the election for the monthly and... <laughs> It was one of those things where as I researched this piece, I got angrier and angrier and angrier. And it was one of those things where you just like, I knew it was shonky, but the scale of the shonk was just, I was writing this thing and just in this kind of incandescent fury about what I was finding out. But I mean, I think in a weird kind of way, the stuff about coal and about the fossil fuel industry is a really interesting example of you know, we look at these problems and we think they're completely unfixable. You know, they're so huge. How do we stop climate change? So let me offer a kind of simple, practical thing we could do. The continued investment, the continued subsidisation of these kind of industries at a moment when we know we cannot keep doing this is because they exert unreasonable control over our government at almost every level. And they do that through donations, they do that through lobbying, they do that through the kind of revolving door which moves people in and out of ministers' offices. You know, I mean, Scott Morrison's chief of staff used to work for the Minerals Council. Almost this kind of roll call of senior politicians now work for mining companies. There is this absolute kind of blurring of the boundary between particularly the coal industry, but mining more generally, and government. And what that does is it distorts government policy and it distorts economic policy. Because at some level, climate change is actually an economic policy failure. You know, we have created a situation where by subsidising particular industries, we are causing massive damage to every other industry and to human society. But, you know, you want to stop that happening. What you do is you get an ICAC. You know, you get rules to stop lobbyists being in there all the time. You ban political donations, you know. So there's a whole series of things we could do which are actually quite low-hanging fruit about kind of improving the way government works, in a sense making government more democratic because what all of these things do is they move political power away from voters, they move political power away from citizens and towards sweetheart deals that are happening in back rooms, you know. So in a weird kind of way, by making the system more democratic, by having a situation where... You know, we've just watched the government distribute hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, probably illegally during the caretaker period on purely political grounds. You know, they should go to jail for that. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, but instead they're going to skate off scot-free. And if we had a proper kind of anti-corruption body, they wouldn't be able to do that. You know, so, I mean, and establishing those kinds of bodies is in a weird kind of way quite low-hanging fruit. You know, and that might actually go some distance to kind of fixing some of this stuff, we might start to get more rational policy happening around some of these things. I mean, it sounds really kind of boring, that kind of thing, but just making the system work better would actually help, it seems to me, quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, and also we have a situation, I mean, you've seen it with the bushfires, but we have a situation where for 20 years the explicit scientific advice to governments has been you have got to reduce emissions, we have got to take climate change seriously, we have got 
to ratchet down our coal mining. We have got to ratchet down the fossil fuel industry. Governments have ignored that clear scientific advice. They've put in place policies which have made it worse, and our government in particular has worked aggressively internationally to undermine efforts to bring down emissions. In any other industry, you know, in any industry, if the directors of a company or the people running a company ignored explicit advice and then harm was caused to people on the basis of that advice, they would be fined or they would go to jail. But our politicians, who have done this on a kind of societal scale, don't get caught by it. I mean, it's just we should be unbelievably angry about what these people have done. Yeah, we are. We're, we're, <laughs> we're, trapped, we're trapped within a system with what's the choice if we don't have this bloke within that party, we have the other bloke who's mm. way more terrifying. So when I saw these signs at the marches going, sex gomo, I was like, well, no, because then you'll get Peter Dutton <laughs> and that would be horrible. <laughs> but then on the other side, you know, you've got the, a Labor Party that, you know, don't want to talk about stopping coal and, you know, don't want to talk about zero emissions. And it's like, God, man, can we just get someone? Because we are educated people. We're, you know, I, th- I really feel that the centre of Australia is reflected quite recently by the yes vote. 64% of people have shown that in their hearts, they're like, go right ahead. Good for you. Way you go. How about you? All right. That's the majority. And that's, those people can put two and two together. Those people can see, hang on a second. This is probably not great. Let's do something. But neither of these, like, and then we're left with no, what am I going to do? Vote for someone that's not going to, you know what I mean? It's like we're stifled by this political system that is not doing anything. You talked about resilience of the community, and uh, we're definitely seeing that right now. We were recording this in the first, second week of March in 2020. So in five years from now, you'll know what happened. This is the (laughs) early months and weeks of the coronavirus outbreak, and... um, just this last week, people were punching strangers over toilet rolls in a, in a suburban Woolies, all right? But it is a point, for me, it's testament to a lack of leadership, a lack of someone who's at the top going, hey, guys, not great, but here's what you need to do. Uh, soap and water is better than uh, hand sanitizer. If you've got a cough or cold, you're really going to have to not go anywhere for two weeks. And if you're over the age of 50, be extra careful. Mm. Business as usual, take care of yourselves. We'll keep you updated back in 12 hours. But there's no one doing that. And so people freak out and they buy toilet paper. And <laughs> Why toilet paper? I don't, well, that's the thing. <laughs> it's a completely rational response, but it makes me think, what the fuck are we going to do when we're on water rations? What yeah. are we going to do when they're having to, like, if it gets to a point where we're rationing petrol? Like, how is our society going to react? Are we really that unable to deal with adversity? And it got me kind of thinking, I guess, the difference between our community after the bushfire, uh, bushfires, uh, like how people completely different backgrounds all bandied together versus this. You know, it's kind of interesting. It is interesting. I mean, and I thought the bushfire stuff was really, really interesting. I mean, clearly there were some fairly bad scenes in some of the towns when the petrol and stuff started to run out. But on the whole, people were amazing. And it wasn't just the people who were there who were amazing. You know, I mean, it was all of that stuff about, you know, truckies all turning up to drive food in. And, you know, I mean, it, it's this kind of sense that, you know, particularly since government had abandoned all of them, you know, I mean, and we won't go there. But, you know, I mean, it was really fascinating watching that. And it would kind of go back to what I was saying, which is, you know, we need to think about each other. It's not just about us. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. actually about learning to kind of think about what 
the common good is, what all of that is. And it, as you said before, like, you know, if we can get to that point, the way we treat each other is very, very different. Do you think we've got, I mean, it's going to, Going to have to do it quickly. Do you think we've got? You look at some countries, like for example, in Japan after the Fukushima quake. There's photos. I remember my brother sending it to me at the time. Devastating earthquake. There's no food or water. Da da da. Just long, 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 hour long, hours long queues of people calmly waiting mm. for supplies. All right. And I thought if that shit happened in Australia, yeah, I've not convinced Sydney siders <laughs> that do that. <laughs> Um, you know, culture, but culturally in that part of the world and, you know, kind of Eastern Asia, there's that we before me uh, feeling is definitely in China. Uh, we before me, but here it's me before we. And how are we going to move further towards or closer towards uh, if I help you, I help everybody. I help me as well. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, but I mean, I do think. I think what happens with this virus is going to be really, really interesting. You know, mm. I mean, I think if you've spent some time thinking about climate, I mean, I think the kind of arithmetic of this looks to me at this point like it's pretty inexorable. You know, like once it's out there in the community, it's just going to spread. We can slow it down, but it's going to happen. But it's going to be really interesting to see after that first kind of convulsion of people buying up toilet paper and pasta, whether... I guess that better side of people comes out. And I kind of suspect it will. You know, I mean, I suspect that all of that stuff about helping your neighbours, I actually think people will do that. You know, I, I hope people will do that because I kind of think people are actually fundamentally decent at some level. But I do think also it's about the kind of society you set up. I mean, you talked about our kind of political leaders. If you live in a society which constantly says your needs are greater than the needs of the person next to you, you know, that you should be allowed to kind of maximise your individual gain all the time, that's going to generate a society where people don't look after each other. And, I mean, you can see that all of that stuff about the kind of, in US, all of the stuff around the prepping is absolutely in all of those kind of communities which are all about guns and they're all about, you know, individual self-reliance and, you know, all of that kind of thing. But it's also this kind of weird culture of, of not doing that. I've got a, a friend who was talking about, in fact, the way Aboriginal communities deal with all of this, you know, which have a much stronger emphasis upon community, upon family, upon looking after the people around yourself than lots of kind of bits of white society. And he was pointing out that Aboriginal communities have survived 200-odd years of, you know, dispossession by learning to look after each other. And that that learning to look after each other is what helps you get through. But, I mean, I think that people will work that out. You know, I mean, I, 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 look, I, hope, I hope so. But, I mean, I, I, I think the virus stuff is going to be really, really interesting because, I mean, what what I think it's shown a lot of people really quickly is that our society is not resilient. And I think at the back end of this summer where we've seen, first of all, the fires and then the floods and then these massive storms that have gone through, I think it has started to dawn on people that perhaps all of this stuff that looks so permanent is not terribly permanent you know, that it could just change. And I think that's really confronting for people. But I think also it's quite a useful thing for people to suddenly realise. I hope that the response is not, I need to go and build a bunker in the hills. I'm sure it will be for some people, but I do think that for lots of people with the virus, it will actually be, how can I help people? You know, what can I do? Maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe I'll be wrong. I don't know. But, you know, I, I actually think people, when put to the test, often turn out to be better than they think they are even. When you talk to your kids about because um, <laughs> I have to talk to my my 16 year old she's very very switched on 
person. She went to the climate march uh, with her mates. When you talk to your kids about the next shit, like their life, yeah, what do you what do you say? I so far have not had to have those conversations, particularly because one of them's ten and one of them's thirteen. The thirteen year old is getting to the point where you're starting to need to have those conversations. Mm. I actually don't know what I'm going to tell them. You yeah. know, I mean, I think it's really, really difficult. I mean, the thing I keep emphasising to them is that if there are things like climate marches and things, you've got to turn up, you know, like that you do what you can. Mm. And I must say you were talking before about feeling very lonely and frightened. And I must say I thought that one of the things, I remember going to one of the first big climate rallies and suddenly thinking, it's not just me. Mm. You know, and that was a really, to go back to that idea of looking after each other, that sense that you're not the only one mm. that's frightened. You're not the only one that, you know, thinks this needs to change. I found it incredibly moving. You know, maybe it's like church. Um, <laughs> speaking of someone who doesn't go to church. But that, that sense that you're not alone mm. is incredibly yeah. important, you know. Um, but with kids, oh, God, I'm... I honestly don't know. You know, I must say I listen to my older daughter talk about what she wants to do as a job and I just think I don't know that that's going to happen. Like I don't know. Mm. I don't know what the world looks like in 10 years' time, you know. Yeah, but, you know, we we can only try to really, I mean, I guess all we can really do is try and stay present to what's happening right now. Yeah, look, I mean, look, at the end of the day, I think despair is a cop-out. I understand it. Yeah, I totally understand it. And it's it. a natural reaction. I think it's a natural reaction. You know, and I do think one of the things about trying to think about climate is that it's incredibly massive. It's all-encompassing. It's just what is it called? touches a, everything. What sort of object is this? Oh, hyper-object hyper my term. It's, it's a philosopher called um, Timothy Morton talks about it being a hyper-object, and he says it's something that's so massively extended in time and space that we can't hold it in our heads. No. And I think that's a really useful way of thinking about it, and I do think that that's why most of us, our response tends to either be we start to think about it and we just lose our shit because it's too dreadful to imagine. Mm. And two, you can't make sense of it. And so what you do then is you just ignore it. Like you think, I'm just not going to think about it. So you engage in that kind of denial. So you either you end up in either despair or denial and somehow you need to get through those two things. And it seems to me that well, there's that old line about the best antidote to despair is to do something and I do think that even if it's just turning up at rallies even if it's just talking to people in your workplace even if it's just like just do something join a political party do something Mm. you know you you can make a list of things to do but just do something because at the end of the day that's all you can do you know it's got to be an undeniable grassroots noise yeah it has to be it has to be the people that every political party claims to speak for, the mums and dads, the Aussie battler, whatever, has to be an opp- opportunity to speak to, and as difficult as it is to speak to someone, and I get, I it's so terrifying, I don't want it to be right. real. And when I speak to someone who's denying, I'm like, I wish you were right. I wish your meme was true. Mm. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> but I wish it was. I'm sorry. You have to have that uncomfortable chat with that person you work with. You have to. And slowly, slowly, slowly over time, that person will kind of go, oh, I used to wear a jumper at this time of year. I don't now. Hmm. This is a bit odd. Maybe, because nobody wants to be wrong. You know, people want to hold on to it. But we have to have those conversations and we have to have those conversations beyond ourselves. We have to engage others in it. And that's hard to do, but it's what we have to do. 
Yeah, you know, and I mean, and I think around, certainly in my writing, one of the things I've constantly tried to do is to both diagnose the problem, you know, because I mean, I think that that's one of the things that you want to do is you want to kind of make it clear to people where we are. And I don't think you need to be hysterical about that. I mean, it seems to me that in a weird kind of way, a much more forensic approach is often better, you know, mm. because you don't need to amp the facts up. They're really, really bad, yeah. you know. But then I think you need to somehow move past that to saying, look, you know, so here's what we do. You mm. know, like here is, these are the ways forward and they, they may not be very great, but you break these things down and you do them a step at a time. You know, like it's kind of like you just do what you can today, you know. And I think also there's a real thing about people going, one of the ways that people derail action on anything is to say, you can't fix the whole problem. And it's like, you and I can't fix the whole problem. Nobody can fix the whole problem, but we can fix that thing. We can vote for a different person in parliament. There are things we can do. We can write to our local council and complain about something they're doing. You know, and you can do the things that are on your scale that you can manage. I think one of the things that really matters also is that people, when asked about these things, always suggest kind of consumer things. I could buy a Prius. I could buy green power. I can do all of those kinds of things. And they're all really good things to do. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, I could become a vegetarian. That's a fantastic thing to do. You should do that, you know. But in fact, what we need to be thinking about is how do we engage as citizens? And that means voting, you know, harassing parliamentarians, turning up at demonstrations, joining political parties, organising groups at your workplace that work on these things. I mean, doing that stuff where you actually engage as a citizen as well as as a consumer, that I think is actually much more empowering. You know, and actually, to be honest, I think achieves more. Yeah, because as much as I can be a vegan and drive my electric car, one downstream solution doesn't change. If a legislation comes in like it has in Europe or in parts of China, no, there's no more petrol cars, then the choice is taken away. And it's like, well, that's just it. And, you know, we've done that. You can't smoke under a certain age. You can't drink under a certain age. We've done that before. Speaking of certain age, I was kind of thinking, you know, I've been listening to a podcast about Whitlam's dismissal and the the f- fucking wild CIA MI6 shit that was going on. <laughs> oh, man. But when I look at G, uh, who's 16, and I look at kids who are your kid's age, this is pretty much, an analogy would be, it's the Vietnam conscription of their time. Yeah. It's like, you're sending me to fucking die. Yeah. No. Yep. No, 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 no. I might only be in high school now, but the moment I can vote, I'm no, because that's what you're doing. This is what these policies will do, and I'm smart enough to know. Yep. Don't tell me I should stay in school, fuckhead. Like, <laughs> you're sending me to die. And, um, you know, when you, you, know, you listen to recordings of people who got their numbers picked for the draft in their Vietnam draft in Australia, they're like, oh, it's got nothing to do with me, but, you know, if I don't go, I'll go to prison. Fuck. <laughs> You know, and then their lives are completely fucked because they'll anyway. But it's similar to that. I feel it's you know framing it like that. But that's very doom and gloomy, and and we've spoken a bit doom and gloomy today, and that's okay because it's it's full on. But people tend to respond more to what's the hope message here. Hmm. So if you look at this opportunity that we have now, you know, like I look at the people punching each other over toilet rolls, and I think there's a great opportunity for us to become more resilient as a society. Can you imagine how great shit will be when we can all absorb wild stuff like this on an international scale and go, it's cool, we got this, we're Australians, we'll get through it. You know, look at Britain during the, the Blitz. You know, look at London. They just kept their shit together. 
You know, it was amazing. What's the upside? What's the hope message that we can find and the positivity we can find as a community out of what's happening? I think the hope message you can find out of all of this is the only way that we get through this is by building a better world. You know, Australians, I said before, you know, we've got the largest carbon footprint in the world. We've got one of the largest environmental footprints in the world. What's really interesting is that it's, I'm going to forget the exact number, but I think it's six times greater than your average Europeans. And so there are kind of choices there we can make. But I mean, the things that will save us from the problem will actually make a better world. You know, what they'll do is they'll mean that we live in a fairer world. We live in a world which is not driven by consumption in the ways that it is now. We live in a world that is actually kind of living within its means. You know, we live in a world where one of the things we need to do is to raise lots of people up out of poverty. You know, so, I mean, it is that thing where the only way of saving the world is actually by making a better world. It's a fairer, more, you know, a greener, fairer world. It's like all these people who kind of... One of the things I find really weird about the resistance to solar and wind energy is that coal energy is filthy. It's filthy and disgusting. Nuclear energy is really, really dangerous. They're also really expensive. But why, if you could change, wouldn't you change? Like, why wouldn't you move from a filthy, polluting, disease-creating fuel to clean fuel? Why wouldn't you do it? It's actually a better thing to use. So, I mean, that kind of weird nuclear power is such a bloke's technology. You know, do you mean, so there's a whole lot of stuff there about kind of gendered responses, I think, often to this stuff. But, I mean, all of that stuff about we need to build more coal power. I I heard someone, in fact, very funny, I can't think who it was, someone was saying that that all of this stuff about Liberal politicians saying we need to build, or national politicians as well, saying we need to build a new coal power stations is a bit like kids swearing in class. Because no one actually thinks it's going to happen, but it's just a way of showing off. It makes no sense. It's completely bananas. Like, it makes no economic sense. It makes no environmental sense. And no one's going to pay for it. Unless the government actually pays for it, it's not going to happen. But what they get to do is to kind of engage in this kind of signalling to their constituency about what they're interested in. And so there's a weird kind of way where it's actually a kind of political performance. And I thought that was a really interesting idea. It's true, because there's no government that would possibly spend the money to build a coal-fired power plant when it's cheaper to build a solar. Well, you know, I don't don't know if there's no government that would do it. And stay in. (laughs) And stay in. Like, you know, it's just bananas. But I think you're right. You know, the externalities that we've, as as a society, as a community of humans on this planet, the externalities are now pushing us back in the other direction. And we've never had to think about them before. They've been pescally tapping us on the shoulder since the early 1900s and starting to shove us and now they're kicking us in the face and we keep trying to get up and, and buy another TV. But what we will need to become to get through this is such a much better version of what we are now. Yeah. And... I guess for me, that's the thing that when you're speaking to someone who's in full denial or aggressively denying, you can, you know, that's a conversation you can have. And that might be an in, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the old saying goes, nature always bats last. Nature always <laughs> bats last. Um, yeah, that's the, I've had Peter Drew in here, the guy that made the Aussie mm. posters and his latest, latest one is nature laughs last and it's just a picture of a stormy sea. Yeah, and it's just nature laughs last. And he's a really interesting cat because people 
assumes so much that he's just a far fucking lefty. He's not. He's just a dude who believes in right and wrong. <laughs> well, you know, and I think that goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is this kind of notion that there's actually a lot of communality about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like you know, a lot of this stuff is actually stuff that we can all agree on and that we should all be doing. You know, I mean, we do have a situation in Australia where our kind of climate policy and economic policy has been held to hostage by an incredibly small group of people and by the kind of bankrolling of one industry. And, you know, most of the rest of us don't want that. You know, so, I mean, there's something about kind of what we need to do is reassert some kind of democracy around that. But I also think, you know, you say that we don't have any choice about this. I, I was talking to a guy 18 months ago who's one of the lead authors on IPCC, lead, lead author. And after we'd finished talking, we were kind of talking about some other stuff and talking about emissions pathways and we were talking a bit about the fact that we're kind of on track for three or four degrees at the moment, you know. And he said, we'll never get there. No. And I said, why not? And he said, because look at the level of, we're at one degree. He said, look at the level of disruption now. By the time we get to two or two and a half, global society will collapse. And it was that thing about going, I don't know what to do with that. Like, Mm. is that good or is that bad? (laughs) Well, he's right. He's right. He's right. He's right. Because the and as this is showing, we're so fragile with our how much travel we need to keep our international economy going and how much human movement is required to keep the international economy going. We're so fragile that in just a number of weeks we're now looking at a recession that's gonna be months long. Yeah. And he's right. You know, you get that many storms hitting the east coast of the US, Shanghai as much as the Chinese wish they could, the Pacific Ocean will just take Shanghai and then what are you going to do? You know, everything will slow to a halt well before it gets there. Yeah, I think the sea level rise stuff is actually really interesting. I mean, I think one of the questions at sea level is always there's a great deal of uncertainty in the modelling, you know, so we don't know either how quickly it will come up. There's uncertainty about how far and how long it will take. But all of the estimates at the moment put sea level rise by the end of the century somewhere in that kind of, you know, half a metre to a metre plus kind of thing. We're probably maybe a foot between now and 2050. And that is just, you know, it's transformative. And we don't have any choice about that anymore. If we stopped a meeting tomorrow, it would still happen, mm-hmm. you know, and the beaches are gone. You know, there's a study last week about, you know, all the beaches that are going to go, but I mean, you know, the beaches are gone. Large chunks of the world are gone. Miami's gone. You know, Venice, I imagine, is gone. And there's also one of the things I think is interesting about sea level rise is that you get very different responses in different kinds of places. So, you know, New York's kind of defensible because it's on basalt. You can build seawalls and block off all of the entries into mm-hmm. the sewers and all that kind of thing. But, you know, cities like Miami that are built on limestone, the water just comes up in the middle of town if you build a seawall. And with the metre of sea level rise, it's gone. People just find it difficult to think about difficult to imagine. It is difficult to imagine. I I can feel it in my body right now. It's (laughs) it's terrifying. I feel a sharp and and awful pain inside me. And I can only hope that that pressure on those communities, you know, will have an effect where people go, look, we can either tear each other to pieces or we Mm. can figure out a way to do this together. And generally as humans, we've we are where we are because we figured out how to do this together. Yeah. I'd like to think that that can continue in this new world. Yeah. At a community level, at a national level, at an international level, we've got to learn to do it together. It's the yeah. only way we get out of this. <laughs> <laughs> Man, it's so scary to speak with you, it, it, but it is the conversations that we have to have. It really is. I couldn't 
when I was sick, there's no way I could have ever had this chat with you. I was nervous last night. I was nervous today. He's coming to speak with you. Even now I'm thinking about, Jesus, oh, how am I going to do the next thing? I've got to go and have a jog or something before I <laughs> do the thing at five o'clock. But it's super important that we, we have these conversations. It's super important that people hear these conversations because they might not be able to have them in their own community. And it's super important that we're not talking about hypotheticals. Yeah. And they're really, really hard. I mean, I find them emotionally incredibly difficult. You know, I mean, and I find, like most people, I spend a lot of time carefully not thinking about it because it's really hard to think about, but I find it incredibly upsetting. But what do you do? The solution to feeling upset is to try and do something and to talk about it. Mate, thank you so much for coming in. I appreciate your time today, man. That's great. Thank you for having me. Thanks. No worries, man. Thanks. That is James Bradley. You can find him on Twitter at City of Tongues and you can find him on Instagram, Ghost Species. Ghost Species is the name of his latest book. Uh, he's written seven novels and I would highly recommend you get stuck into those and the essays that he regularly writes online. Thank you very much to everyone that helped me make this show. Thanks to the team at the Batuta Advocate for letting me use their studio right before everything shut down. Thanks to Rachel Barrett, my show producer, Andy Ma, my audio producer for um, working hard despite um, studio setbacks this week. Thank you very much Haley, for the socials, Mike Mills for the music. Oh, thank you for listening. Thank you Audrey for the hugs. Uh, they've been very helpful. Take action this week. There's nothing else to do. Just, like, do one thing a week. Send one email, send one fax, make one phone call a week. One a month if you want. Just do something. Reach beyond your sphere. Reach beyond people that you know. Because what are you going to tell your grandkids when they ask you what you did? Right. I'm going to go upstairs and bath a baby. Um, I know I've been hitting you with a bit of stoicism lately, but even though after everything I've spoken about the future... There's a great line from Seneca that I read this morning. The part of life we live is really small. For all the rest of existence is not life, but merely time. He's right. It's just this is the moment. This moment when I'm talking to you, when you're listening to me, this is our life. Everything else is just time. This part that we're living is, is infinitesimal. And this is where we are. So... Oh, like I said, I'm going to go bath the baby. Go and play peekaboo with the ducky. I'm going to wrap him up in a towel, give him a big cuddle, and put him to sleep. Because that's all I can do today. Thank you very much for listening. I'll talk to you Friday. Until then, sleep well. Dream of beautiful things. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.